This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And today I am pleased to be talking to Professor Lawrence Hammermesh. He's a professor emeritus at Widener University, Delaware Law School, and executive director of the University of Pennsylvania's Institute for Law and Economics. Professor Hammermesh is also the reporter for the Corporate Law Committee of the American Bar Association's Business Law Section. So that means he's participates and responsible for drafting and re- revising the Model Business Corporation Act. In addition, he's known, no, he, in addition to knowing everything Delaware related, Hammermesh also between 2010 and 2011 served as a senior special counsel in the Office of Chief Counsel of the SC Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Corporation Finance, Corp Thin. So he understands the complex interplay between the SEC and Delaware law. Welcome, Professor Hammermesh. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so today we have a lot of stuff on the agenda. We want to talk about books and records requests, advance notice bylaws, how they impact activist investors. And then if we have a little time on one of my favorite subjects, the growing battle over due class share structure companies giving insiders control of the votes at corporations. So the story I've been working on all day is uh, Carl Icahn is hoping the Delaware Supreme Court will provide some clarity next month about what kind of proof an investor needs to provide when they seek out books and records as part of a proxy fight. The uh, top Delaware court set a hearing date for February 5th, and I'll be keenly listening in on that. Um, And this is an appeal of a Chantry court, lower court decision, rejecting his request for books and records at at Occidental Petroleum. And uh, it's my understanding that he has a director contest there and this request for books and records, trying to get additional communications, is to complement that. So the appeal that ICON has is points to a section of the lower chance court's opinion. Remember, this is the one that rejected his 220 request. And in, in, in the, in the uh, lower court decision, the uh, court notes that the law in this area is unsettled and could use some clarity, um, which I believe ICON is hoping that the Supreme Court will provide some clarity and give him access to communications. He obviously wants uh, communications, emails, presentations, things like that matter, to support his thesis that Occidental Petroleum's acquisition of Anadarko Petroleum was bad for Occidental shareholders, and it was also the affiliated deal with Berkshire Hathaway that Occidental struck was also bad for shows. So, Professor Hemmerich, let's start with that. Uh, you know, do you agree, I mean, uh, that in these, these books and records requests, as it pertains to a proxy fight, um, the, 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 the law in the area is unsettled? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, what's, what's inter- it's an interesting case. Uh, what's interesting is that, um, uh, that there are areas in 220 cases where there's really no controversy whatsoever. Uh, you may, I'm sure you also know that uh, ICON was asking for these materials in part to, for the stated purpose of uh, investigating possible wrongdoing. And mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the Court of Chancery concluded that, no, that really wasn't what it was about. Uh, it's really uh, in aid of a proxy contest, and there wasn't any apparent wrongdoing, just a disagreement about um, uh, whether a business judgment was sensible or not. Uh-huh. Uh, which I can see that as being relevant to a proxy contest, even if there's no good to come out of it. So what he then did is to say, well, since I can't look at this from the, from the lens of cases involving investigating potential wrongdoing, if there really isn't any, uh, I've got to look at it, whether or not this is appropriately uh, something to pursue simply in aid of a proxy contest. And hmm. 
and, and as, as the lower court noted, as the vice chancellor noted, there's, there's not a lot of clarity there. Uh, what he re- fell back on was the fairly uh, standard proposition that when, you, when you're seeking documents, uh, what you get has to be fairly closely tailored to the purpose you're, you're stating. So the cases about getting documents in aid of a proxy contest are mostly historically about, well, you get the stockholder list, you, know, you get the CD breakdowns, uh, you know, other logistical things. But uh, I'm, I, I got to say, I can't remember a case that squarely raised the issue. Well, how about being allowed to dig into a, a, a transaction where there's a legitimate difference of views as a business matter, but not uh, really a claim of wrongdoing? Is that fair game to, to, to dig into in aid of a proxy contest? And the vice chancellor said, no, applying the standards that he had to work with. But uh, but it really isn't so clear. Um, and uh, uh, will more clarity be useful? Sure. Will we get it? Uh, well, you know, I, you and I have both been around a long time, and nothing is ever definitively finally <laughs> clear for all time. But right. uh, you know, we might see some progress. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I uh, often see these requests in the form of uh, an effort to get a shareholder list, uh, you know, from the company in a proxy contest. And this is clearly far more than trying to, you know, this has nothing to do with getting a shareholder list. Um, this is about, you know, getting these communications. So it would definitely set some unusual precedent that I think companies would not be happy if the, if the Supreme, Delaware Supreme Court uh, approved this case. So anyways, we don't have a lot of time. Um, let's move on. A couple other subjects sure. that I thought were quite interesting. Corporations in recent months have received two back-to-back Delaware court rulings supporting their advanced notice bylaws for director election procedures. So for listeners who aren't familiar, these are kind of bylaws that kind of set the rules for how a dissident and activist hedge fund, let's say, uh, can nominate its director candidates. They have to nominate them by a certain time. They have to own a certain amount of shares in a certain way. They have to fill in the questionnaire about those director candidates. So the Delaware Supreme Court this month invalidated a slate of activist director candidates submitted by Saba Capital Fund, Bose Weinstein's fund, uh, to the board of two BlackRock closed and mutual funds. And the court basically charged that the activists failed to respond to a supplemental questions posed by BlackRock's, uh, you know, the, the closing mutual funds, requesting information about the nominees within five business days required by the trust bylaws. Basically, uh, they had a supplemental questionnaire. It was like 47 pages. It was a lot of questions. Um, a lower court, Delaware uh Judge Vice Chancellor Morgan Zern originally sided with Saba, saying the question queries about the director candidates, the dissident director candidates, didn't qualify as the type of questions corporations should can ask of directors or trustees in this case. But the Delaware Supreme Court overturned that. So I'm curious, uh, Professor Hammermesh, what do you think about this? Um, I suspect that uh, this is kind of a win for these bylaws and that uh, activists better respond to these questions uh, and supplemental questions. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a fair statement. And, and uh, uh, it's an interesting case because of the scope of the questionnaire. Uh, the, the truth, at least as the Supreme Court saw it, was that this questionnaire had some stuff in it, some questions in it that were uh, uh, beyond the pale. So to that extent, Saba was right that, that the questionnaire was overbroad. Um, on the other hand, uh, the Supreme Court said, and I think Saba acknowledged, that there were some questions on there, like a third of them, that were fair game. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and there were some that were in the middle that were sort of in dispute. Uh, and what what the uh, uh, dissident could not do, what Saba could not do, was simply say, well, it's too big, so we're not going to deal with it at all. Uh, the Supreme Court said the bylaw is clear. You got to respond to this within the five-day period prescribed in the bylaws. And simply doing nothing because it might be too broad is not a way to go. Uh, that that's not going to be okay. Uh, so we now know how that case comes out. What we don't know is what happens the next time uh, uh, an activist or a dissident is in this situation. And the questionnaire is too broad under the circumstances. What do you do? Uh, yeah. Well, again, you don't just ignore it and 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 uh, hope it goes away and argue that it's too much and you don't have to do it at all. Uh, you probably are going to want to answer what you think is fair and maybe a little more. And then as early as possible, let the company know that the remaining questions are you know, in, improper, inappropriate. Um, and... I'm not sure how a court would sort that out. You know, if you if you got uh, uh, if if you're the uh, activist and uh, you answered 40 questions, refused to answer 40 others, uh, the court says that uh, uh, those 40 others, you're right, you didn't have to answer those, uh, and you didn't have to answer 19 of the other 20, remaining 20. But there was one that you didn't answer that you should have. Are you going to lose? You know, at that, I'm not sure how that comes out. It's it seems like at the dance. very least, if you're going to file another challenge to these questionnaires in Delaware court, you better uh, make a good faith effort, at least try to answer parts of those questions that you feel are, you know, are comfortable. Obviously, there were some that the activist didn't want to uh, talk about. You know, a lot of times, the, the this is kind of a push, push and tug where the activists want, the company wants to know the uh, the relationship between the, in, you know, quote unquote, independent director candidates um, nominated by the activists, you know, where are they affiliated? Are they associated with the activists? Is this a Trojan horse that they're putting these directors in to do the activist bidding, which, you know, I, ma I imagine in most cases it is, <laughs> or, you know, yeah. how are they affiliated with the activists and getting to that and, you know, but I could see some of them, these questions becoming too uh, intrusive, you know, what is the assets under management for limited partners at the fund and things like that. I'm not saying those are questions that yeah. were asked of, of Saba, but um, I could see the, the company trying to dissuade the whole campaign with uh, kind of intensive questions. So I guess the court would have to deal with that. All right. So let me ask you another question. Sure. Um, the, 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 this is another case that seemed to help the, the, the bylaws. The uh, uh, last year, the college bookstore spin-off Barnes and Noble Education one in a Delaware case, uh, the court declined to allow another activist, this one is little known Bay Capital, to pursue a direction, director election contest there. The college bookstore spinoff argued that the activist didn't meet requirements in its bylaws, which included being a holder of record of the company's stock on June 27th, the deadline for nominating directors. The fund, which had been a beneficial owner of stock at the time, argued unsuccessfully that Barnes & Noble Education should not have been able to enforce the requirement because its bylaws and the 2018 proxy statement conflicted over how they calculated the deadline or how they came to the deadline. And, um, you know, so this is a situation where the, the company invalidated the, the dissonance director candidates. I had a look at the proxy statement and, you know, I always look at these proxy statements when there's a proxy contest or like, I, I think there could be a proxy contest. And I often feel 
that they're, uh, you know, they're often very frustrating uh, for, they're, they're not very clear. In this case, uh, you know, it said that you have to nominate the director candidates a certain amount of days before the company's annual meeting, you know, that when is the annual meeting? It's not set, you know, sometimes. But the bottom line is the, the activists really should have checked the bylaws and, you know, that's where it well, was in stone, right? It's even more, it's even more than that. Uh, I'm grateful to you for pointing this out because I have to admit I, I hadn't read uh, this ruling. Uh, it's, it's not a written opinion. It's an uh, oral ruling transcript. And uh, so uh, in preparation for this discussion is the first time I'd actually read it. And uh, it, it's true that uh, the court acknowledged that the proxy statement was at, at, at best unclear, if not conflicting with what the bylaw said in terms of a deadline. Uh, and that's why the court allowed the case to go forward on an expedited basis toward, toward a preliminary injunction hearing. As it turned out in the discovery, the, the principal uh, for uh, uh, Bay Capital uh, was sorry, I hope I'm not slandering anybody, but was a wise guy. Uh, uh. As, it, as it turned out, he had been given very good advice uh, that said, you got to do this by June 27th. <laughs> right. okay. So he knew perfectly well what the deadline was and just kind of fooled around and didn't take care of business. Mm -hmm. uh, and then started to uh, behave in his deposition in a very standoffish way. I mean, it was really uh, kind of a shameful performance. and. And so the court was pretty fed up. So, but it did. I mean, you're right. Uh, if, if that, yeah. So, but my thing is the if you put on your SEC Corp Fin hat for a second. I feel like the disclosure of the deadlines. I mean, a lot of times they say your nominee is due in, in the proxy statement. They say your nominee is due by X Y Z date, and that's it. Or here's your window from January first to. February 1st, 2020, and that's very clear. A lot of other times it can be a little confusing. I feel like in a lot of cases, I mean, maybe this is not such a big deal, but I, I wish that the uh, SEC required companies to be clearer about when these deadlines are. Now, that doesn't obfuscate the idea that you still need to, you know, the bylaws are probably very clear if you can get access to the bylaws. But um, Which you can. Which, which you can. Yeah. Also, uh, in fairness, the SEC's own rule on this subject, 14A8, uh, is phrased in that same confusing way. It's 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 keyed to deadlines that flow from the previous year's meeting. Okay, we have a few more minutes, and uh, well, I guess overall, uh, you know, do you feel like these two decisions? I don't know. Do they broadly help these advance notice bylaws and the companies I, that set them up? Or yeah, I think they do, and, and they're part of. I think it's been a pretty strong trend. Uh, if the bylaw is clear, mm -hmm. and isn't uh, isn't being used manipulatively or deceptively uh it's going to be given effect uh and and the bylaws as i've observed elsewhere uh the there's sort of been a a scope creep in these things over the years so that uh what used to be a fairly simple thing to comply with has become quite a production but uh these cases seem to uh, uh support uh, the, uh, the requirements. Okay, great. All right, we have a few more minutes, so I wanted to just uh, touch a little bit on my favorite subject, and I wanted, hoping you could give me a bit of a Delaware angle to it, because that's one that uh, I haven't followed too closely. And this is, of course, the subject of the dual class share structures, these companies um, giving uh, uh, IPOing, uh, giving insiders, founders uh, control of the vote. Um, and with the dual class share structures, you know, this is, 
uh, in my opinion, an existential threat to activist investors and their proxy fights. They can't uh, win a proxy fight uh, because the company, the, the founder, Mark Zuckerberg, controls the majority of the vote. Then there's, uh, you know, that takes away one of their big um, sticks in the in the campaign. So I wanted to get your thought about um, a compromise movement that seems to have emerged that would try trying to drive the stock exchanges to set up listing rules to require companies to set up sunset dates in their ar- articles of incorporation to require a one share one vote system uh, by definitive year down the road, say seven or 10 years. Um, and uh, so anyways, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the idea of a sunset provision. So uh, basically you set up, you start off with giving the founder control, but later on uh, that's taken away. Although the question of when it's taken away is kind of arbitrary. Or that's the problem. Yeah. So tell me what you think about it. <laughs> that's the real problem. I, uh, my colleague at Penn, Jill Fish, has, uh, has done what I think is a really good paper on this subject. And as she points out, uh, sunsets really are arbitrary. In, in one case, uh, a dual class arrangement that lasts for uh, seven years lasts for six years too long. Might be that uh, the, the dual class arrangement continues to serve really important purposes and to, to cut it off ahead of time down the road when you don't know how the company is going to be behaving or how the founders are going to be behaving uh, is maybe not an optimal solution. There may be other triggers that are appropriate. For example, you know, what if the founders cease to be the, uh, the chief officers of the company and aren't really working anymore? That kind of undercuts the whole idea of, of, of the dual class arrangement. Uh, and maybe that's a more relevant trigger. Uh, that is. I, you know, I, I guess we're, we're going to see some market development here. We already are seeing some with sunsets and possibly with other approaches. Uh, the debate in Delaware, mm-hmm. uh, or about Delaware, is the same one as the stock exchanges. Uh, when are you going to mandate this kind of treatment? And I, I think I think it personally would be inconsistent with Delaware's approach to be that regulatory as to uh, impose uh, any kind of specific sunset period or any specific arrangement uh, on on dual class capital structures. Uh, I, I rather suspect that these exchanges aren't going to do that either. Uh, but um, there's plenty of play in the joints, as we saw with staggered boards, uh, so that over time there may become, through activist pressures uh, and institutional investor pressures, uh, a market uh, approach that limits the uh, the duration or, or, or impact of these uh, these arrangements. It's interesting because the, uh, the you know the everyone always points to Sumner Redstone at Viacom and he right. and the issues associated with him controlling majority of the vote at Viacom and CBS causing a lot of their problems. But uh, maybe the the trigger would have been when he gave you know uh, put in his his lawyer Philip Denu as the CEO. <laughs> that would have been maybe the trigger for, for uh, you right. know you know, decades of him being in control of the vote. Uh, that would have been the, the trigger to illuminate the one share, one vote. So that's an interesting point that, the, you know, maybe the, the trigger should be um, when the, the founder who controls the votes is no longer running the company. That's, that's, uh, I think I'm going to have to write an article about that. Thank you. Uh, You're too late. <laughs> but just for very briefly, if Delaware wanted to do something, how would it happen? It would be the Delaware legislature. The, is there a Delaware, you know, uh, is there another means where in Delaware it could happen? No, it would be, uh, if, if anywhere in Delaware, it would be a legislative change. Okay. 
Okay. All right, great. Professor Hammermesh, thank you so much for taking the time. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. We've learned a lot. And, uh, and Professor Hammermesh, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Good to talk to you.